Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh, my co-host. Hello. And that is the sound of the Thames rolling in to the riverbank at Mortlake. We'll be covering Mortlake and East Sheen today. We're stood, as I said, on the riverbank. We're like a foot away from the river. This is as close as we've come. Maybe no, let's not like two foot away from the river. We can see the Thames lapping up in front of us. Just to make it... (laughs) (laughs) We're standing now outside the Mortlake Brewery. The old Mortlake Brewery. Yeah, so is it out of action? Yeah, it looks defunct, but it looks tremendous, doesn't it? Yeah. What a frontage. It's a wharf, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, 1869, I believe it is. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is now, but there is a new brewery next door that does Budweiser. Budweiser is an American beer, Steve, is it? I believe so, yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know about booze, do I? What's it like, Budweiser? Is it nice? Uh, I don't like it. It's... You can find me in the club bottle full of bud yeah yeah I'm, I'm no sort of connoisseur I mean you know generally bud light beer tastes like paracetamol doesn't it if you're going to be does it yeah it's like, I'm, I'm not some sort of camera real well aficionado but I mean Budweiser is just very sort of standard nothing particularly nice about it is it really yeah, is, yeah. is it what's the idea in America is what like people in Florida that are not that uh, cultured drink it's just branding isn't it king of beers they've they, they you know when we looked at advert uh, advertising book a couple oh, of weeks back wise. and they had the um, uh, yeah exactly yeah uh, and the what's up and the, and the um, do you remember the, the, the advert with the bottle cap inverted down, yeah, same yeah, to yeah. crown so just good advertising isn't it good branding so that's what's brewed here now you better a good look at the different kind of water towers they've got in action yeah yeah so it's, it's for some reason they're like labelled for the public almost aren't they cold <laughs> cold brew hot <laughs> brew yeah much less attractive than your old wolf style uh, I don't know, I think there's appeal with both. I do like the sort of industrial look of the new breweries. Fittingly, Steve, we've just had an American lunch, haven't we? At uh, Pickle and Rye, uh, opposite Mortlake Station. We had a couple of sandwiches. You can see pictures on uh, Instagram.com slash SLHC. Follow us on there. Also, Twitter.com slash SLHC. Or at SLHC, as the kids are calling it. <laughs> yeah, don't type in all that stuff to get to us. Yeah, uh, mine was called uh, chicken cob and it had chicken in it corn fed um, avocado bacon tomato boiled egg lettuce and an extra slice of bread you know and I had that with a nice coffee Steve you had a root beer I had a root beer and a Toronto what's that? Uh, it was uh, loads of beef tomatoes cheese lettuce hot pickles were an option but I asked them not to be included is because that, is I'm that the way you phrased it? or was it hold the pickle I think I said uh, can I not have the pickle ah. please I think I, I think I sort of bottled it and turned English at the last minute so yeah I mean it's not cheap in it but stuff sandwiches are expensive now but I highly recommend uh, you get that American dining experience Steve yeah the food was great wasn't it? I mean the actual the decor we had like a Baltimore coffee cup holding sugars on our table and that's all right and like they had like baseball caps hanging a bit sort of tired off the wall but i mean the food's spot on so the spot we're at now is quite significant steve isn't it i mean you when you get down to the river at this point it is so different from going to like waterloo bridge or whatever yeah you know there is a bridge to the left of us um and we should know what it is oh look i've got my map here steve oh no it cuts it off it's whatever's between Kew and Barnes. <laughs> so look that up if you really want to know. But it's just like 
lined with trees and yeah when you look at the across the river to the other side it looks like a riverbank mm. as opposed to the embankment that we're used to seeing traveling through sort of central london yeah jo- joseph basil get did not get this far <laughs> and you know you go a few meters to the west and you're in surrey so we are pushing the edge of south london today but yeah significant steve because it's the finishing point for the oxford cambridge boat race or the boat race as it's known i can't think of any others and and has been for 150 years or something yeah yeah you ever tuned in who do you support uh i've never bothered i've I've never seen the appeal of it i might have asked you this question on our bridges episode which you can go and find on stuff on Be interesting, because like, now options. I don't have a definite answer. And I imagine then I might have just lied and gone, like, Oxford, isn't it? Of course. The blues, or light blues, or whatever shade of blue they are. Because they're both blue, aren't they? Uh, yeah, like the Crips. <laughs> We've walked down river slightly, and up some steps, and down some steps, and found a plaque, site of the Lower Dutch House, part of the Mortlake Tapestry Works, 1690 to 1703. Steve will talk about Mortlake Tapestry Works in a moment. But when you go on Google Maps or even search Google, it's very difficult to find any kind of location of where the Mortlake Tapestry Works are. So if you go to southrunhardcore.com, click the map link, go to the Mortlake section. I mean, this is not very interesting for many people, I imagine, Steve, but we'll be able to add to Google Maps where the Mortlake Tapestry Works were. Where, or, you know, where this stone is laid. Well, the address that the place has now is Tapestry Court, which, you know, it's going to be pretty easy for people to find on Google Maps, with or without our help. But oh, but we'll lead them to this very stone. But it's important to note this is part of the Tapestry Works. It would have been a huge operation. Mm. It was sprawled across a large part of uh, the riverside. And it's a good example of a riverside industry, something that is reliant on being by the river. With Tapestry, you get dyeing. With dyeing, you get a lot of you know, often just noxious fumes that are not conducive to people living nearby. So as beautiful as this spot is now, it wouldn't have been an ideal residential spot at the time the tapestry works were here. Is it a significant tapestry works? They didn't do the Bayo, did they? They didn't, of. but I mean, the, the, the work is still collected in some of the sort of larger museums and galleries around the world. I think the Ashmolean in Oxford's got a couple of uh, Mortlake pieces. So we've come across two churches next to each other, both called St Mary, St Mary the Virgin and St Mary Magdalene. It's quite tricky to distinguish where one ends and one the other begins. Well, yes. it turns to the, grave, the, courtyard, the graveyards. There's a sign-up or an, a guide to the tombs and graves that just says Mortlake Churchyard. So it looks like at some point they just combine the two churchyards into one larger one. There are planes going over the whole time, by the way. You'll no doubt hearing them, but we're right on the flight path. And it's quite uh, disconcerting, isn't it, to get these plane shadows over here. And you sort of look up, and they look like sort of model aeroplanes that are buzzing overhead. They're so large. The most notable person buried here, Steve, arguably, is Henry Addington, isn't it? First Viscount Sidmouth. Yeah, former Prime Minister. Yeah, 1801 to 1804, he was uh, Prime Minister quite dull though if you look well you know it's all about war and tax yeah you know yeah. If it, what he's notable for the treaty of uh, amiens you know about 
an unfavourable peace treaty with France in Napoleonic times. He uh, lived on the White Lodge in Richmond Park, which is uh, now home to the Royal Ballet School. That's Richmond can't really get too involved with that kind of No, so no, that's out of our jurisdiction. But it looks like a lovely place. Richard Burton, Steve. It's quite excited to read, but it's the wrong Richard Burton. Isn't it? So many Richard Burtons. I mean, the real Richard Burton is buried in Switzerland. But this is uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton. Do you want to tell me about him? I haven't read him. Oh. He uh, did the first translation of uh, Arabian Nights, 1001 Nights. Oh, is that Richard Burton? Yeah, he yeah. published the Karma Sutra in English. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people uh, got him to thank for... <laughs> uh, he was critical of colonialist policy, Steve. That's why I thought he might be one of your favourites. <laughs> and uh, he was the first European to see Lake Tanganyika. Do you know what that is? It's in Africa, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's in Africa. So, I mean, that's pretty spectacular, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, one more fact, Steve, he spoke 29 languages. Yeah, he would have been, I think at the time, the phrasing would have been Orientalist. It would have been the idea of someone whose work Yeah, that's what it says on his Wikipedia page. Oh, is it? Right, List of Orientalists. Yeah. Um, Which is basically anyone uh, whose work doesn't include the Western canon. So as soon as you go to, like, Africa and Asia, you're suddenly in this world and you know as you say they're remarkable things to consider you know translating the Kama Sutra and the Thousand One uh, Arabian Nights they would have been works that would have been just ignored for so long and mm-hmm. it is it's you know it's interesting he's critical of colonialism but by the same token it's colonialism that would have given him the opportunity to do that work I'm no great defender of uh, colonies and empires but you have to sort of be aware of the practicalities of it and the only reason someone would have been that far away in the world had the resources and the, the pathways to follow would have been down to Empire of Rome another plane <laughs> which brings us nicely on didn't plan this segue Steve but to the plaque for John Dee who coined the phrase British Empire yeah the, the father of the British Empire in many ways he was not critical of colonial policies. <laughs> so tell me about John Dee, Steve, because I imagine you've, you've uh, come across him before. When we realised that we could talk about Mortlake, John Dee was the first name that came up for me. And where we are now is very close to where his house was. He had this legendary house in Mortlake, the largest library in England at the time and one of the largest in Europe. His house became a sort of legendary spot for, for scholars and uh, learned people. None of the house survives except for a stone arch which has been moved into the churchyard now. Oh, right. Yeah, we're facing it. Yeah. And that would have been an archway that led onto the river uh, at the back of his garden. There's various reports of it uh, across the years and it's on the record that the arch is the only surviving part of his house. After his death, John Dee's house also becomes part of the Mortlake Tapestry Works, which gives you an idea of the sort of sprawl that they would have had around the area. He's a fascinating character. He's very much part of the tradition, or just towards the end of the tradition, where magic and science are intertwined. You know, the idea of alchemy is as much sorcery as it is science. And... Dee himself is a great example of someone who 
dabbled in what we would consider the occult and magical, but at the same time made huge strides in terms of science. Mathematics, wasn't it, specifically? Yeah, mathematics was his, his major sort of discipline, but he didn't think that wasn't magical. His, his mm. belief was if you could crack the secrets of mathematics, it would give you the code of how the universe worked. And, but even then, it wasn't, uh, this is all within uh, Christian beliefs. It was the idea that God had hidden what we would consider magical properties within mathematics to allow humans to gain greater understanding of the world, which is essentially science. But just thinking in, in, in magical terms, in, 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 in the sense of the supernatural, larger than what we can see, which is uh, largely what science has spent the rest of the time trying to do, sort of unravel the mysteries of the world, world around us. But as part of what Dee wanted to do in terms of, of magic and science, they would often intertwine. And you know, his belief in the need for a British Empire is a great example of this. He believed that Britain had a spiritual right to dominate the world and would use his studies of the occult and of general history to prove this. A great example is his attempts to build a, uh, a claim to the New World, to the Americas. And he was, was constantly trying to find documents that would prove that Brutus of Troy, having founded Britain, then went on to find America. And therefore, Britain belonged to America because this uh, quasi-fictional character from pseudo-history <laughs> had associations with both. But so that was his sort of spiritual occultist claim to these things. On more practical terms, he realised that the only way that Britain was going to build the empire that he thought it needed was to have a massive navy. And he had, you know, he was a very, not only at court, he was a, a massively influential courtier for Queen Elizabeth I. You know, his astrology helped to determine her coronation date. He was a man that she listened to, even when he was insisting that astrology told her when she should be crowned. In 1555, he was arrested, though, for calculating uh, horoscopes of That's Queen right. Mary and Princess Elizabeth, then Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and he goes to the Star Chamber uh, and not only defends himself and acquits himself, but manages to bef- to, bef- to befriend his accuser from the star chamber, and they became lifelong uh, friends and uh, scientific colleagues. So you've not mentioned angels yet, Steve? I haven't mentioned angels yet. I was because I was just waiting to establish that his belief in the British Empire led to his belief in the need for a massively strong British navy. So he he insisted that Elizabeth should invest heavily in creating Britain as a naval force, which she did, and it did lead Tanya to... the waves. Exactly, yeah. Um, but as a byproduct of that, Dee used his massive library, scientific knowledge, intellectual connections across Europe to develop ideas on geography and navigation, developing instruments and, and tools for, for sailors that became standard. So it was a, a case of him having this spiritual belief in the need for a British empire but then having the practical tools to allow Britain to actually grow an empire he had other ideas about the purpose of the human race one of which was his belief that once a global empire was established with Britain at the head you need a universal language to allow that to to, to, well you've got English but his belief was that there was a a sort of unconscious ability to communicate within us all that could be taught through studying the language of angels. Um, it's Enochian language. 
and his belief was that if you could commune with angels and learn what their language was, you could then use that to tap into everyone in the world and be able to communicate on a, a global scale. He found a collaborator in uh, Edward Kelly, who was a man who convinced the that he could communicate with angels to such a degree that they would travel across Europe and Britain at the behest of the angels that Kelly was speaking to. Alan Moore seemed to, uh, I don't know, he seemed to think that the language, that, cause it was Kelly who came up with the language, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Kelly came up with the language. But I don't know, Alan Moore seems to think, not there's some truth in it, I don't know. It just seemed like he was saying, that it was. he seemed to think that you can't, you, how did he come, how did he just sort of spurt out this you know, the thing about informed. the thing about well, the, the thing about you know many people have you know the belief is that Kelly was a charlatan and a con artist that managed to get, to trick John Dee and drag him around Europe and you know the final straw being when Kelly comes back uh, from speaking to Angel Uriel and the message is that we must share our wives yeah and Dee goes along with it but. The no, relationship doesn't last no. too long beyond that. And you might think that Edmund, Edward Kelly is nothing more than a fraud and a charlatan, but he has convinced arguably Europe's most intelligent man of the veracity of his claims. And as Alan Moore points out, what he came up with was a grammatically mm. correct and consistent language. So you can argue about where he got those, those messages from and where that language came from. But it wasn't him coming up with gobbledygook and then later on attempting to place a syntax and a grammar over it. It was something that made coherent sense, which would have been a huge part in convincing Dee of, of what he'd heard. So tell me about Rudolph II and his army of dwarves, Steve. Yeah, as part of their exploits across Europe, they find themselves, as everyone did at the time who had any beliefs in the occult, they find themselves at the, the court of Rudolph II in Bohemia. Uh, Where's that? Modern day Prague. Right. Um, and Rudolf was a man obsessed with new ideas, the occult, magic, mystery, and would, and, and this is the key, would pay handsomely to support yeah. people that would be able to, you know, prove that they could communicate with things. And like, again, he was convinced that Dee and, and Kelly would communicate with angels and were prepared to pay them good money to hang around. But luckily, Kelly invented the Philosopher's Stone. You all discovered it at that point. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, while they were in a place where they found a monarch who was ready to pay cash money for... Uh... <laughs> yeah, they used various sort of scrying tools and stones to... Uh, communicate with angels always you know happy to sell them on and find another one do you know about alan moore's opera about john d no alan moore was invited by the manchester international exhibition some sort of uh, thing up in manchester um where it was actually this this expo company wanted the gorillas to do uh, a thing and jamie hewlett and damon Albarn got in touch with alan moore and said we want to do a musical about superheroes and Alan Moore went I have no interest whatsoever in doing a musical about superheroes yeah. and they were like oh right we want to do a musical with you for this thing and he's like yeah I suppose you'd be interested in like a musical project I don't do anything about superheroes and he was like where is it and I was like Manchester he was like well if it's Manchester you should definitely do uh, a musical about John Dee who transformed Manchester in the few years he was there as a sort of a civil servant essentially and they were like oh right uh, who's John Dee and then he explains about this you know 
wonderful. You know, what a character for a, a musical. Mm. Uh, you know, a magician, scientist, imperialist who's communicating with angels when he's not redesigning Manchester City Centre. So Alan Moore agrees to write the story for this opera and Gorillaz and Jamie Hewlett will sort out the musical visual side of things. In exchange for doing this, Alan Moore wants Gorillaz to do a cover and a couple of pages for Dodge and Logic, his magazine he's got going oh, on at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it seems pretty and straightforward. They did, yeah. And they didn't. Uh, and he it, did the opera? Well, he wrote the, the, the sort of like outline for it and uh, a bit of it in good faith. And then it became clear that Gorillaz weren't going to deliver on their couple of pages and cover for Dodge and Logic. Why? Uh, they didn't have time, apparently. So Alan Moore said, I haven't got time to write an opera. So it just didn't bother uh, writing. Disproportionate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> if you could just do two pages of drawing for me, you know, just draw the same stuff you always draw. <laughs> I'll do you an opera. Um, so yeah, Alan Moore didn't uh, finish his opera about John Dee. Damon Albon did finish his opera about John Dee. Uh, there's a great interview with Alan Moore where he said, uh, uh, someone says to him, have you heard the Damon Albon, Dr. D uh, album? And he's like, I have, and I'm really glad I've got no part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been released. Dr. D, yeah, yeah. It's called Dr. D. It's called Dr. D. It's not, it's, right. you know, as you'd imagine it to be. Damon Albon does his album about Dr. D without Alan Moore. So, but Alan Moore's a man who's long been fascinated by uh, John D. Uh, him and Ian Sinclair in a couple of books, Liquid City and uh, London Orbital, mentioned coming to Mort Lake and visiting. And in another interview, there's a great bit where Alan Moore talks about Dr. D and, and the work he did and, and how, what a fascinating life it was. And makes a contention, I've not read anywhere else, but does, does sort of add up that you know, eventually D dies here in Mort Lake in poverty with no one but his daughter by his side assisting him and he dies in 1608 1609 it's not really firmly on the record but Alan Moore believes that William Shakespeare took the model of an ancient magician dying in poverty away from the rest of society with only his daughter by his side and turned it into the Tempest which was his final play Dee is prospering sort of makes sense we're halfway through the episode and you've not told us where we get the name Mortlake from, Steve. Is it because it's so obvious? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Dead. Lake. <laughs> yeah, there's different uh, derivations of it, but I mean, essentially, it comes from the fact that there's a body of water nearby. So, our visit to Mortlake ended at Memories of Mortlake, an antique shop. You're being very kind. Yeah, I mean, it took isn't it it's just <laughs> packed with absolute rubbish I said to you afterwards it's a sort of place where and you're probably tricked by the media into thinking this but I was just walking through again there's one thing in it that's definitely worth a thousand pounds and labelled at one pound fifty but I don't know what it is and I haven't got the time or the inclination no, to and, go and through everything there's literally only one thing in there that yeah. is worth money yeah it's just a load of old cups and I mean the books were nothing anyone would want it's not records. Even, it's not even a great junk. selection of uh, pirate DVDs, is it? No. What was it? Larry the Cable Guy is. But I've never seen Inspector. I've never seen pirate DVDs on commercial sale before. No, Just I what haven't. they are. Yeah. I think she could plead ignorance. The lady. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. No. Someone's just bought in a pile of DVDs for her, and just offered her at ten p each. But we crossed the road, went to a charity shop, and 
paid it, even if it wasn't half price day. I can't remember even which what it was called. It was before we got to Mind, because we've been to like four other charity shops since I bought nothing else. But uh, yeah, I got a book about John Ruskin for my dad, which I may browse if we get back. Have we already covered John Ruskin? I don't think so. There's certainly In more to say. Deepest, darkest, darkest England and the way out. Maybe. Uh, and a book about the Godfather. What did you get, Steve? I got a book on the history of France and a massive hardback lithograph all about Gustave Doré, which has got to be like £25, £30 worth of book. London specific, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And it was it was free quid normally. It was half price. They said it was £1.50 for this giant book full of wonderful pictures. Couldn't go over it. So we've entered Sheen now. Uh, had an iced tea the local supermarket and now we're in the East Sheen Library where they've got a plaque on the side of the wall a mosaic I should say www World Wide Web with a quotation this is for everyone Tim Berners-Lee Tim Berners-Lee from East Sheen who invented the web you know just one of the most important communication tools of all time it's incredible that he has a link to South London not Lincoln, from South London. Yeah, born here and raised there. He went to Sheen Mount Primary School, so we're not going to stop there, Steve, but if you're going to do the Forest Sheen tour, you probably should go there. Came to the attention of the general public, I'd say, during the Olympics opening ceremony in 2012. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it made an incredible impact, which we'll come to in a moment, but um, Danny Boyle's ceremony, which was kind of mixed in terms of quality, but there were some lovely little moments in there, weren't there? And one of them was, you know, this the roof comes off this house and the walls, and Tim Berners Lee sitting there on some old computer. Uh, I think it was the computer. He yeah, used it was originally called Next. Yeah, yeah, some sort of yeah. Um, and then he, you know, he typed something out, and it, and the stadium, like, I guess the seats or not the seats. No, they had those like things on the end of the seats, little LED things, and yeah, it yeah. spells out this is for everyone. It's an incredible moment. Because that's the thing, you know, the only thing greater than inventing the World Wide Web. He's then deciding that you shouldn't own it and make money off it. You should just donate it to the world. Yeah. He just... That's it. This is for everyone. You know, he... In 1989... Well, in 1980, he had this idea, didn't he? Before the internet. He was working in France at the time. Then eventually, in 89, he he comes up with hypertext, doesn't he? Yeah. Which is the H in HTML. And, yeah, he just literally put it out there. The the idea was that he he was getting very frustrated in... In, uh, in developing these things and because everyone had a different computer and they all ran on different code and it, you needed this universal language and I suppose the idea is that if it had not done that it wouldn't have taken off you know, who knows the alternate reality is that eventually someone would have done something obviously yeah, yeah. But, but it would have been someone working that, in the commercial department at IBM or Microsoft it would have been mm. someone somewhere where it would have belonged to one company. Yeah, you know, two have... internets. It'd be like yeah. Betamax and video, wouldn't it? VHS. <laughs> but it would, wouldn't it? Would yeah, be yeah. like, oh, do you remember when we had that other internet? That was weird, wouldn't it? Now we have Web, web 2.0, we've had that thing. It really, this is the beauty of the internet. That it is what you make it. And that's partly down to him, isn't it? You know, we can go on, we we'll create a website, we we'll record a podcast and put it up and we can we shape it. You know, this is the history of the internet, is that people have shaped it with what they wanted to do. It's not just about, you know, MySpace and, uh, you know, YouTube, these companies. It's Yeah, it's not it's coming from commerce, it's coming from people. Yeah, it's driven by by humans, which is a beautiful thing, and especially today's, uh, the world we live in today, you know. 
someone once said to me, and it um, kind of stuck with me. They're talking about festivals specifically, but they're saying it applying to anything that you can't have anything unless someone's making a load of money off it. Yeah. So now every single festival, for example, is sponsored by some company. You know, every football team has company name on their shirt. You know, these things can't exist unless somebody is putting in a load of money, and that's a shame. But the internet is the kind of kind of last bastion of you know against that. I think. My favourite discovery doing research for this was uh, Tim Berners-Lee talking about um, web addresses, which obviously start HTTP colon forward slash forward slash and uh, www. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he was saying to someone uh, just casually, yeah, don't need the slashes. Don't know why I put them there. Yeah, just <laughs> I know it's bad. even even the www is. Seems a bit uh, redundant, <laughs> and you know the old fact that uh, it is an abbreviation that uh, takes three times as long to say, three times as many <laughs> syllables as uh, the words. But yeah, um, it's interesting that you know his even his mistakes and excesses are so embedded now mm. into how the world works. No pun intended, you know. <laughs> you do get that, Steve. Don't you? I do get that. <laughs> Um, I think there's a, a nice point to be made as well that sort of ties the episode together. I mean, as, as we know, I'm firmly on the record as being a fan of, of psychogeography, the idea of a, a place informing people and people informing a place. And I think it's fascinating that, you know, the most famous resident, until Tim Berners-Lee, and arguably even now since Tim Berners-Lee, um, for this area, what they can assume, was John Dee, who spent his life trying to find or discover a universal language that would allow the world to communicate on a single level and I'm, I'm pretty sure Tim Berners-Lee didn't grow up obsessed with John Dee and this idea but almost unconsciously he's taken on that project and brought it to a greater fruition than John Dee could ever imagine you know the world now does live on one platform and it's the internet which grew out of a place you know half a mile up the road from where John Dee spent years trying to talk to angels yeah, he tried to create a universal language. Tim Berners-Lee created HTML. So you, you made the point, Steve, and I just can't. <laughs> I mean, that would be a great way to end the episode, wouldn't it? But we have got some more stuff. <laughs> but just if everyone visually or mentally there could just put a little lock on. Hmm. Yeah, turn off now. Unless you've, <laughs> you've got nothing better to do. Out there, an opening ceremony, you know, I must admit I was in the dark about who he was, you know, this is for everyone. And the NBC commentators on live American television, who made a mess of the whole thing, said, uh, if you don't know who he is, don't worry, neither do we. <laughs> There's something particularly hilarious about people who are proud of their ignorance. North Sheen, South Sheen, Central Sheen, West Sheen. There's no Sheen anymore. Um, There's only really East Sheen left. It was kind of absorbed into Richmond, essentially. There's a North Sheen train station, but it's kind of not in Sheen at all, famously. Um, and I felt like I should clarify, because I did say to someone I'm going to East Sheen, and they said, oh, that's where uh, Hancock's Half Hour's set. But that's Cheem. That's right. So if anyone's going, they've, they've not mentioned Hancock yet. <laughs> most famous resident, I think you'll find. <laughs> We're on the train now, heading back to Denmark Hill. What are your, what are your impressions of Sheen, East Sheen? And what legs they It's very flat. It's the first thing I noticed getting off the train and walking around. I'm very used to denser, taller buildings in South London. But, and this feels very much like... I go to West London quite regularly 
tutoring and it always strikes me on the train how flat and open West London is. It was like I just never built up properly. It was only ever suburbia. And I get the same sort of feeling with Mortlake and East Sheen. Just very sort of open, flat. Nice, there's some nice stuff there, but doesn't have the density that I'm used to in an urban space. What do you reckon? The next station is up. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform edge. Yeah, I agree. Um, not as nice as buns. No. Um, an interesting mix, really, like on the high street. Like a lot of charity shops, um, and not like the super classy ones. Like the last one we went in for the, um, is it called the Youth Education Sport something or other? Yes, is the abbreviation. I mean, that was an absolute tip. So you've got a mix on the high street of some quite, you know, trashy shops and like not especially fancy restaurants, but then you've got places like Oliver Bonus. There are moments on the walk where you do think, oh, there are probably people living here with a bit of money. And there are. You know, Trevor McDonald, the local uh, resident. I've always thought it was a bit odd that he managed to rise to the top of being a newsreader despite the fact that he can't really speak properly. <laughs> you know, like, he doesn't ask to pronounce the word years, for example. He says years, doesn't he? <laughs> Not a fan. What do you think about Sean McDonald? I've never really had any shock to this point, but nothing. Remember, there was now... a bit where he was, like, ironically popular. Like, uh, yeah, he became. <laughs> you remember he had that moment? Well, novelty singles and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other current residents include Philip Glenister. Life on Mars. Catherine Tate. The television. Yeah, and uh, Omid Jalili. Yeah, comedy. John Knight's a big uh, Omid Jalili fan. Tim Berners-Lee is the most famous native, you might say, or certainly in recent times. In the area, there's a school called the Tower House School, which is a private school. Did you come across it? No, no. Um, so they had plenty of people who are not necessarily from right there. Some of them are local, others are kind of slightly further afield. I'll give you some of their alumni, Steve. Jack Whitehall, posh comedian. Uh, Robert Pattinson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who I think we mentioned on the Barnes episode, who plays uh, Edward Cullen in the um, Twilight films. Louis Farouk. Right, right. You like him, don't you? I do. I'm sure that means Marcel Farouk and Paul Farouk probably would live nearby as well. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, yeah. Louis Farouk was born in like, Singapore or somewhere, wasn't Yeah, it? yeah. Um, uh, Jamie Ricks, who wrote Grizzly Tales for Gruesome Kids, which I used to watch on the telly as a teen. Uh, Rory Kinnear. He's an Ooh, actor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's in a couple of Bond films. Black Mirror won Theatre Awards. Mark Lester. Oliver. <laughs> uh, Ahmed Rashid. Anything on him, Steve? Name rings well. He's a uh, commentator of some kind of Pakistani. Oh, right. Um, and probably most impressive... Tom Hardy. Bane. Yes. <laughs> this is for everyone. <laughs> so at some point, I mean, it's quite a staple of uh, British actors we've got. Really, yeah, really, yeah. South London, you know, Jason Fleming, Tom Hardy. Gary Oldman, Tim Roth. Johnny Harris, loads of them. And I'm not sure exactly where he's from, Steve. Stephen Reid. The Ireland national. Oh yeah, he played for Sheen Lions, a football team. Really? Yeah. He's played for obviously Blackburn, probably Millwall. But Blackburn's probably yeah, the it's longest. It's one you associate him with yeah, the strongest. Probably now. No, I mean neither. And there's another football team locally, Steve, called uh, QPR, K E W. 
park rangers. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. To make Southrun hardcore, we do have some costs. So we really do need you to keep using the Amazon link. That way, you don't have to pay any money that you wouldn't be paying in anyway. Just Amazon give us a little cut of whatever you buy. Also, at the moment, there's a free 30-day trial to be had of Amazon Prime, which means you get to watch free television shows and films unlimited for a month, which you can sign up for on southlandhardcore.com using the Amazon link, and we'll get uh, £5 for every person that signs up for a 30-day trial of Amazon Prime, you know, which includes the instant video. So please go out your way to do that because that is a way you can support the show and it won't cost you anything. Even if you go and cancel it immediately after, or you could watch, you know, loads of great television shows in the meantime. Watch the Tom Hardy film. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another South Island Hardcore playlist.